The title of today's sermon is The Law of Unconditional Love. Our text will be taken from Matthew 5, verses 43 to 48. Shall we rise from our seats and let's read together Matthew 5, 43 to 48. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Shall we bow our heads at this time and seek the blessing of God for His Word? Our Heavenly Father, once again, we are depending on the Holy Spirit to be our teacher, our discipler, our mentor this morning. And Lord, we seek your face, O God. We pray that you might glorify your name and that through your word, you might edify and build up your people. We pray, Lord, that we might be encouraged, inspired, and instructed, Lord, to follow and obey your ways. And Lord, if there is anything that we have not yet surrendered, anything that we have not yielded to you today, allow us, Lord, to consecrate ourselves to you in full devotion. Lord, once again, we seek the unction of your Holy Spirit for our minds and our hearts, even for me as your messenger. And Lord, whatever is going to be achieved today, we will give you back the glory the praises, and the thanks. In Jesus' blessed name we pray. Amen and amen. When Jesus came into this world, he saw a religious system among the Jews that had been corrupted. What he had seen was traditionalism. What he had seen was uh, external religion, bereft of substance, and essence. And so the Lord Jesus Christ mission, one of the missions of the Lord Jesus Christ, was to somehow expose this religious hypocrisy as well as the fallacious interpretations of Scripture by the Pharisees, by the rabbis, by the scribes. He wanted to speak the truth to the people so that people might be set free not only from the bonds of sin, but likewise from the bondage of false religion. And of course, the words of the Lord Jesus Christ somehow causes a divide between those who are genuine and those who are fake. As we very well know, there are many uh, people who profess Christianity. They profess to be believers in Christ. And yet, when we examine their lives, it is not aligned with the Scriptures. It is not aligned with the will of God. Now, such religion, as James would say, would be worthless. They would be useless. And obviously, that will have no reward in the very presence of God. In fact, one of the things that may happen to us is that we may have this false assurance of salvation. And when we come before the judgment seat of God, it is possible that He will say to us, Be gone from me, I never knew you. And many of us might protest and we might say, But Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do this and do that for your name? And then, the Lord will just simply say in indictment to us, I never 
knew you. Such false religion is something that needs to be exposed. Why? Because it brings not only a false assurance, but it causes people to be complacent. And Paul wanted believers to always be on their toes. That is why he said to the Corinthians, test yourself and see whether you are really in the faith. David himself said, uh, examine my heart and see if there be any hurtful way in me. And I think we need to be introspective. We need to really find out if the kind of religion or the brand of religion that we have is true, if it is genuine. Because again, that is the only one that will bring about an evidence of the genuineness and the authenticity of our faith. And so today, so today I'd, I'd like to be able to present to you two points, which I have um, began with the letter F. So uh, this is for memory aid. And then the second uh, point has subpoints beginning with letter C. And again, this is for our memory aid. So in verse 43, we will be talking about the flawed interpretation of the Pharisees. In verses 44 to 48, we will talk about the flawless interpretation and application of Jesus. In verse 44, we will talk about the clarification on the law of love. In verse 45, we will talk about the confirmation of true sonship. And then in verses 46 to 47, we find the contradistinction from unbelievers. And finally, in verse 48, the command for believers. And so let's dive into our text right now and let's talk about the flawed interpretation of the Pharisees in verse 43. Now in Matthew 5 verse 43, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now obviously, when the Lord Jesus Christ would like to exposit or expound on a passage from the Old Testament, he would go back and reference it. And so, in this particular case, what Jesus was referencing from the Old Testament was in Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18. So allow me to read this passage to you. It says, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, try to compare Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, with what Jesus quoted in Matthew 5, verse 43. And the question I'd like to ask you, is there any difference between those two passages? Do you notice any additions, for example? And if you will observe rather closely, what is it that you will notice? You will notice that in Leviticus 19, verse 18, although it says, love your neighbor, it does not say, hate your enemy. And so what, what do we make out of this? Jesus was actually quoting verbatim, a direct quote among the uh, Pharisees. Uh, this was a this was rather an unscriptural inference and invention of the Pharisees, which they presented as an exposition of Leviticus 19 verse 18 in the synagogue. And obviously, this was a flawed, a fallacious interpretation of Scripture. Again, we find here that the Pharisees and the rabbis and the scribes added that phrase, hate your enemy, which was not part of the original as we find it in Leviticus chapter 19. And we find many other things like this, by the way, when we go to uh, some of the rabbinic traditions and interpretations, what you and I will discover is that they actually added many more 
of their traditions into Old Testament scripture. And many of these additions that they had made actually nullified and made void some of those passages. And again, what do we find here? We find human justification. Probably they added those passages of Scripture somehow to maybe ease their conscience. That might be one of the possibilities here. Or probably one of the things they wanted to do was to add certain external things to somehow project a religious, a, a very spiritual facade. And again, there were many motives, but one of the motives was basically they knew they could not follow the spirit of the law. Now again, whatever uh, reason you have for either adding or subtracting from the word of God, these things are wrong and they are inexcusable before the presence of the Lord. So Jesus was pointing this out that they had actually twisted the meaning of Leviticus 19 verse 18. Now what the Pharisees did was abuse this particular passage of Scripture in the Old Testament by actually approving or including only those whom they liked, those whom they loved, and those whom they approved. Now, in truth, this passage was not supposed to be exclusive, but Leviticus 19 verse 18 was supposed to be inclusive. It should be including all men. Therefore, the spirit of the Old Testament law was to love all men, not just your friends, not just your um, family members, not only those whom you liked and approved, but the Bible in truth tells us to love all men regardless. And that is what the Lord Jesus Christ was pointing out here. And oftentimes, isn't it true that when it comes to the application or implementation of Scripture, we tend to somehow apply it only uh, when it is convenient and when it is comfortable for us. This is what I'd like to call a selective obedience. And we have a tendency to do that. We tend to be selective in the things that we would like to apply or obey when it comes to the Word of God. But then again, in the judgment seat of God, all of us will be exposed. All of us will be naked in the very presence of the Lord. And He will reveal to us where we have gone wrong, either in thought, in motive, intention, in deed, or in speech. And that is why in the study of Scripture, let us not make excuses for ourselves. Let us not practice eisegesis wherein we read into a text our own interpretation. We should be people who are truth-driven. We should allow the Scriptures to speak for itself. And by that, let us allow our lives, our minds to be conformed to the Word of God, to the Scriptures. This is what Jesus intends to do. And so here again, uh, we find here that the Old Testament law on the love of neighbor was supposed to be applied to all men. Now, one of the possible excuses on the part of uh, the people in the time of Jesus Christ, the Pharisees and the rabbis and the scribes, maybe one of their excuses was the imprecatory psalms. And I'll give you an example of an imprecatory psalm. And maybe this was where they added that interpretation where it says you have to hate your enemy. In Psalm 137, verses 7 and 8, it says, Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it to its very foundation. O daughter of Babylon, you devastated one, how blessed will be the one who repays you with the recompense with which you have repaid us. Now, what do we find here? Well, what we find here 
is a judicial judgment on nations. Now, that is the context. Judicial judgment on nations. We are not talking about individual judgment in this case. And we have seen all along in this particular series that what is supposed to be applied in a particular context, uh, more often than not um, in a wider context, what the, uh, what the Pharisees and the scribes had done was to somehow limit the context of that and applied it merely to individual relationships. And again, that should not be the case. And so again, very important that we determine the settings, we determine the context, we determine how it is to be applied. And again, when we talk about the imprecatory Psalms, they are judicial judgments on nations and they're not supposed to be applied individually. So again, what does the Bible tell us when it comes to individual relationships? We are not to be picky, we are not to be choosy, but rather, we are to love all men. And we go next and segue into the flawless interpretation and application of Jesus Christ, beginning at verse 44, all the way to verse 48. Now let's begin, first of all, on the clarification of the law of love in verse 44. Notice what Jesus says, but... I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, by making this statement, remember that Jesus was not going against the Old Testament, but rather what he was going against was the interpretation of the Pharisees and the scribes. That was what he was going against. And what we find here is that the Lord Jesus Christ is saying, you want to find out the right interpretation of this passage? You want to find out the right application of this passage? Well, I'm telling you, this is the correct, the truthful, accurate, perfect interpretation of Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18. And according to him, it says, you need to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, once again, we find the pronoun I here, and the pronoun I obviously refers to the Lord Jesus Christ. And what is quite interesting is that the pronoun I happens to be a contrast emphasis once again. Now, I'd like to pick up from the explanation of Stanley Toussaint, one of those great Bible scholars when he expounded on this particular verse of Scripture. And this is what Stanley Toussaint had to say. He said, The pronoun I, however, indicates that he is contrasting his teaching with some other thing. The contrast is not with the Old Testament, but with the Pharisaic teachings, which is made plain to us by Jesus' quotation of hate your enemies, which is nowhere found in the Old Testament, but connected with Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Now, we ask the question, was Jesus really correct in citing the fact that um, when the Bible says that we are to love our neighbors, that we are to love our enemies as well? Was Jesus correct as well in adding the fact, or not adding the fact, but interpreting uh, love your neighbor as praying even for those who persecute you? Now, Jesus was definitely, definitely not out of line when it comes to the Old Testament Scripture. Jesus was not twisting the Old Testament, but rather he was giving the correct interpretation of the Old Testament. For example, when Jesus said, love your enemy, this was really uh, in alignment with Old Testament Scripture. Let me give you some examples. Look at Exodus 23, verses 4 and 5. It says, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you shall surely return it to him. 
Notice it says, your enemy's ox, you shall return it to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying helpless under its load, you shall refrain from leaving it to him. You shall surely release it with him. Once again, we're talking about people who hate them. And so, again, let me just give you another verse of Scripture. In Proverbs 25, verse 21 and 22, it says, If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. So again, we go back to the question, was Jesus out of line? In adding, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. No, he was never out of line. The Lord Jesus was giving us the correct interpretation. So once again, we find that Leviticus 19 verse 18 was not supposed to be exclusive. It was not supposed to be exclusive to those whom you like, those whom you approve, those who are pleasing to you. No, it includes all men. It was supposed to be inclusive. And again, we are supposed to love our enemies. Now, again, we know that in terms of application, that seems to be quite a challenge. In fact, for some people, it sounds impossible. And I believe this is one of the reasons why the Pharisees added that, um, that phrase, hate your enemy. Because they could not apply this. They could not apply the scriptures in their own individual lives. And therefore, sometimes that is what happens when we are cognizant of our own human limitations. When we are cognizant of our own human weaknesses, our own frailties, we tend to lower down the standards of God. And so what happens is that we adjust our moral compass. And that is not right. The standard is God. The standard is Christ. The standard is the Word of God. We cannot add to it. We cannot subtract from it. And therefore, what we simply need to do is pray for God's grace to come upon us that we might have the strength, that we might have the empowering to be able to follow the Scriptures. Yes, loving your enemies is difficult, but that is what the Lord calls us to do. And therefore, friends, we are to pray to God that we will be able to apply that through the grace and the empowering of God. And again, we find here the purpose of Bible study. The Bible study is not supposed to be for information alone, but for our own transformation. The question that we need to ask is, do we bear a moral resemblance with Jesus Christ? Again, let me ask you that question. Do we bear a moral resemblance with the Lord Jesus Christ? A spiritual resemblance with Jesus Christ. That is the whole point of our own Christian existence, my dear brothers and sisters. That is the end goal. And therefore, the more we know about God's Word, the more accountable we become. To whom much is given, much is required. And if we want to grow in the grace and knowledge of scriptures, or in the grace and knowledge of God, well, we have to yield ourselves to God in a deeper consecration, in a deeper devotion. And that being the case, the Bible says, to whom much is given, much is required, and to him who has shall more be given. So we will, in fact, have more of grace, more of knowledge, and more transformation in our lives. What a blessing that would be. And so again, this is a challenge to us. Now, notice, what about prayer? Prayer, once again, happens to be consistent with the Old Testament. Look at Psalm 35, verses 12 to 15. It says in Psalm 35, 12 to 15, They repay me evil for good, 
to the bereavement of my soul. But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled my soul with fasting. The psalmist was even fasting and praying for his enemies. Wow, this is amazing. And it says, um, And my prayer kept returning to my bosom. I went about as though it were my friend or brother. I bowed down mourning as one who sorrows for a mother. Can you imagine this? One who was an enemy, one who hated you, you treated them as friends or brothers. This was what the psalmist was saying. But at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered themselves together. The smiters whom I did not know gathered together against me. They slandered me without ceasing. So again, question, was Jesus out of line when he said, pray for those who persecute you? Again, we find the Lord was not out of line. He was giving them what uh, the Old Testament required. And obviously, Jesus had no uh, selfish agenda to protect, to twist the scriptures. And he cannot twist the scriptures because he himself is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word became flesh. So Jesus is the embodiment of absolute truth. Jesus is the embodiment of the Word of God. And that is why Jesus would definitely speak the truth and nothing but the truth that people might be set free. And this is what he wanted because many people were held in bondage to religious hypocrisy. They were held in bondage to religious traditionalism, which really had no substance and no essence. They were in bondage to people they looked up to, the Pharisees, who were giving them fallacious interpretations. And that is why they became self-righteous. And in their self-righteousness, there was really religious hypocrisy and so much evil in their own hearts. And this was something that Jesus wanted to expose. Jesus wanted to destroy so that People's spiritual eyes would be opened, their hearts would be awakened to the truth, and that they might receive Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior, receive emancipation and true freedom in their own lives. That is why Jesus had no qualms about clashing with these uh, religious leaders. He was very bold and very courageous. Why? Because he wanted the salvation of many souls. The same thing should be true in our case. Of course, when we examine the Lord Jesus Christ, he spoke with so much authority, the authority of the Son of God. And of course, we need to be very careful because we are not the Son of God. And so we are not to talk as if we are deity ourselves. We are to talk to people as fellow undeserving sinners in need of the grace of God. And I believe that if we empathize with people, if we somehow uh, condescend to the level by which we are saying to them, I understand where you are coming from, I believe they will pay attention and listen to us. But then again, we must never, ever compromise the truth. Never ever compromise the true interpretation of God's word because we will be accountable to God himself. Now, interestingly, both love and pray are in the Greek present tense, which speaks about ongoing, continuing activity. Loving your enemies is supposed to be a lifestyle. Praying for those who persecute you is supposed to be a lifestyle. And again, I know it's a challenge. Maybe you can love your enemy one time or, or pray for your enemy uh, one time. But I know that 
it becomes a challenge to make it your personal lifestyle. But then again, friends, this is what you and I need to do. We need to challenge ourselves. That is why we need to get into the daily habit of prayer. We need to get into the daily habit of saying to God, Lord, have mercy on my soul. Have mercy, Lord. Allow me to overcome my weaknesses, Lord. Allow me to overcome my struggles, O God. That is why daily dependence on God is a must. Because on our own, Jesus made it very clear, we are the branches, He is the vine. And apart from the vine, we can do nothing. The branch cannot supply itself with the nutrients, the vitamins, the hydration that comes from the ground. Only the vine can provide that as it gets it from its own roots. We are helpless uh, by our own selves. And that is why we have to be completely reliant. We should continually be abiding in the vine. That is the only way wherein the life of God, the life of Christ can flow in us and through us. It is only when that happens that we can say, just like Paul, it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. Now, I know that many of us would say, you don't understand. This is my weakness. Friends, you insult God when you say you cannot do it. Because Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Last night, we had a couple as a guest uh, in our own home, and they were able to share their testimony of how they were able to overcome hatred, how they were able to overcome that uh, desire to retaliate. And instead of retaliating, they were able to forgive those who had done harm to them. They were able to show them love, and they were able to, to forgive them. And, and what a liberating experience that was. Now, their enemies, so-called perceived enemies, have become their friends. Those who hated them now love them very much. And those who, um, uh, people whom they forgave, they're the ones right now who are asking for forgiveness. What a beautiful testimony that is. And oftentimes that is what happens when we show our moral and spiritual resemblance with the Lord Jesus Christ. Prayer changes our attitude towards our enemies. You know, when we talk about human love, human love only loves those who are attractive. We only love those who love us. We only love those people with whom we, we derive benefits or, or, or things like that. But when it comes to, to people who have done much wrong against us, it's difficult to love them. But then again, we go to the scriptures and the Bible says we are to love our enemies. Now, some of you might say, but I don't feel it. Well, the Bible does not say like our enemies. The Bible says love our enemies. And when the Bible speaks about love, it, it, it talks about commitment. Love in the scriptures is never described as feelings. It is always a commitment. It is always a positive and a correct action. So yes, the feelings might not be there. We might not, we might not feel like forgiving. We might not feel like loving. We might not feel like praying. But pray. In fact, um, going through the Sermon on the Mount, you know, I have been, I've been praying for those who have, who have hurt me. I have been praying for those who have done harm to me. And I've been praying, Lord, bless them, O God. Let your kindness lead them to repentance, O God. And I believe that is the correct attitude that you and I are supposed to have. 
Let me share to you some very inspiring stories. In 1567, King Philip II of Spain appointed the Duke of Alba as governor of the lower part of the nation. The Duke was a bitter enemy of the newly emerging Protestant Reformation. His rule was called the Reign of Terror, and his council was called the Bloody Council because it had ordered the slaughter of so many Protestants. Now, it so happened that one Christian was able to escape, and he was running away from, his, uh, uh, from this persecution. And there was a lone soldier who was pursuing him and following him. And it so happened that uh, this um, Christian uh, came across a, a lake. And, and by the way, it was winter. And so there was a very thin layer of ice. And uh, praise God, this, this Christian was able to, to cross through that uh, thin layer of ice and he was able to, to reach uh, the portion uh, where there was land. But the pursuing soldier, as he was following, the, the, what happened was the ice started to crack. And to make a long story short, the soldier fell into the icy waters. And, and so the Christian had a choice. Whether, whether to leave uh, this soldier in the freezing, cold, icy water for him to die and he could escape or he could go back and save this man's life and risk his death, his torture, his imprisonment. But you know, the love of Christ constrained him to go back to this enemy and he saved this enemy's life. What a powerful testimony that is. And again, we, we thank the Lord that uh, scriptures is able to bring about a transformation through the indwelling presence and empowering of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's another story. The Scottish reformer George Wissart, a contemporary and friend of John Knox, was sent sentenced to die as a heretic because the executioner knew of Wizard's selfless ministering to hundreds of people who were dying of the plague. He hesitated carrying out the execution. When Wizard saw the expression of remorse on the executioner's face, you know what he did? He went... He went over and kissed the executioner on the cheek. And this is what he said. Sir, may that be a token that I forgive you. May that be a token that I forgive you. What about you, brothers and sisters? Do you have enemies? Are there some people whom you hate? Are there some people who have uh, done great injury to you, maybe oppressed you? Well, what is the response the Bible calls us? The Bible is calling us to respond in love, and the Bible is calling us to respond in prayer for them. I recall one person saying, I don't want to pray for those who have harmed me and persecute me, because if I pray for blessing, they might be blessed. Well, bless them. And who knows? Uh, heaping coals might come upon their heads. And by the way, heaping coals has either been uh, interpreted as uh, a judgment, which, which could happen, or it could mean that their conscience will be bothered so much that they would repent of their own sins. And so, friends, let us be Christ-like. Remember the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Stephen prayed the same prayer when he was being stoned. And remember, when, when you were stoned to death at that time, they were not throwing you little stones or pebbles. 
They were throwing huge boulders against you. And yet, in spite of that, Stephen could still pray for God to forgive them. Again, that is what Christ is calling us to do. That is what Christ would do himself. So put yourself in the place of Christ and remember once again, the old self, Romans chapter 6, has been crucified. And we have been resurrected into this newness of life. Therefore, again, the Bible says that we are not to allow ourselves to be slaves to sin, but slaves of righteousness. Now in verse 45, we find that this is a confirmation of our sonship. Verse 45 reads, So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Now, what is this verse teaching us? What is the Lord Jesus Christ pointing out here? What he is pointing out here is that when we love our enemies, when we pray for those who persecute us, it is a sign, an evidence, a proof of our sonship. Why? Because we bear our resemblance with God. So when we resemble God in His ways, that is evidence of our sonship. And again, that is why this, this verse of Scripture is quite penetrating. And we have to be introspective once again, try to examine our hearts. Because remember what the Bible says. Uh, in 1 John, if we hate our brothers, the Bible says that we have not yet been born again. Because those who are born, of, born again, the Bible says, do not continue in sin. And that is why if our life is a life of continual hatred, and by the way, 1 John also says that if we hate our brother, we are murderers, and murderers do not have eternal life within them. So, again, uh, let, us, let us be more introspective. Let us evaluate our hearts. And if there is any bitterness, any anger in our hearts, we need to release that to the Lord. Release it. The Bible says, vengeance is mine, said the Lord. We must not repay. And so, let the justice of God roll. But it is not for us to judge personally or individually other people. Let God be, be the one to judge them if, if God feels that the justice has to prevail in their lives, then, then so be it. But we are not to, to take matters into our own hands. Now, when, when the Lord says that we are to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, God is not asking us to do something that He Himself has not done. That is why notice the example that Jesus gives to us here. It says, So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for He causes His Son, watch this, to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So obviously, those who are unrighteous are the enemies of God. Those who are evil are enemies of God. And yet, what does the Bible say? What does Jesus say? God makes the sun to rise on the evil. God makes the rain to fall even on the unrighteous. So God blesses people regardless of their merit or demerit, I would say. Although people are undeserving, although people deserve the wrath of God, we still find the common grace of God falling upon men. And that's why we find that people still have food and clothing and shelter. 
in spite of the evil that they do in their lives, somehow the blessing of God, the undeserved blessing of God, the undeserved grace of God is un upon their lives. And what does that tell us of our God? Our God loves even his enemies. In fact, the Bible tells us in the book of Romans that Christ died for us while we were his enemies. Remember that. Christ did not die for, for people who loved him. Christ died for people who were rebellious. Christ died for people who hated him. Christ died for, for people who were evil. People who were undeserving. That is who we are. And because we have received grace in our lives, we are to be dispensers of grace as well. And by that, we will bear the resemblance of our Heavenly Father. We always say, like Father, like Son, right? That is why Jesus Christ was saying to to the Pharisees, you are like your father, the devil, who is a liar. Because that is exactly what the Pharisees and the scribes were. They were really, they, they bore the resemblance of their own father. And we should bear the resemblance of God. That's the point of Jesus Christ here. This is the proof of our sonship. Now in verses 46, to 47, we find the contradistinction from unbelievers. Notice everything starts with the letter C so that you could easily remember that. Uh, I'm using this as your memory aid. So the contradistinction from unbelievers is seen here. And, and again, Jesus says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do you not even the tax collectors do the same? Now, when, when Jesus Christ said, do not the tax collectors do the same, this was probably the most devastating, the most humiliating, the most insulting statement that Jesus made with these Pharisees and scribes. Why? Because the tax collectors were extortionists. They were uh, considered as traitors among the Jewish people because what, what they would do, by the way, the, the tax collectors normally became, became uh, tax collectors or got that office by, by paying the Roman government so that they could extort money from their fellow Jews. And oftentimes they, they would charge uh, or collect taxes which were way, way beyond the capacity and way, way beyond what was just and fair. And that is why they were hated people. They were considered the worst of sinners. In effect, what was Jesus saying? You are worse than the worst sinners. That's what Jesus was saying. And, and that was something that was difficult for them to take because they were placed on a pedestal by people. They saw themselves as righteous. They saw themselves as exceeding the, the righteousness of the ordinary Joe. And yet here, Jesus Christ makes that indictment that they were worse than the worst sinners. Jesus was not mincing words. He was speaking the truth about themselves. And Jesus did not have as, in, as his intention merely to insult them. But this was intended for them to awaken from their spiritual stupor so that they could come to Christ, so that they would be born again. And there might be some of you who are listening to me right now. You consider yourself as religious you consider yourself as godly. And yet let me ask you this. When you measure yourself with the word of God, how do you measure up? Do you measure up to the standards of God? And if you say, you know what, Pastor Mel, with, with your preaching today, I see myself as not measuring up to that standard. And I tell you there's hope. Because Jesus knows, Jesus knew that we would fail the standard. Romans chapter 3 tells us very clearly 
All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is the reason why Jesus died. This is why Jesus became God incarnate. To pay for our sins because we are eternal debtors to God. We will not be able to pay up for all our sins. And what we could not pay, Jesus paid. He paid for our past, present, and future sins so that we could be set free. And all we need to do is admit, acknowledge that we are hypocrites. Admit, acknowledge that we are undeserving sinners. And throw ourselves into his loving embrace and receive the free gift of salvation which he offers to all men. I pray you would bow yourself in humility before God and ask him, Lord, please, just like the thief on the cross, Lord, remember me when you enter your kingdom. And, and you know what? Just like the thief on the cross, Jesus will say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Yes, salvation is not your work. It is the work of God. But the work of God can only work in you if you admit you're a sinner. If you admit that on your own you are hopeless, that your good works will not save you, that your religion will not save you. If you throw yourself fully and totally and surrender your life to Christ and repent of all your sins, He will save you today. That is the good news. That is the gospel. And I pray that will happen to you even today. Now, we go to verse 47. Jesus says, If you greet only your brothers... What more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Now, who were the Gentiles? The Gentiles among the Jews were considered the enemies of the Jews, but they were not only considered as enemies of the Jews, they were considered as enemies of God. And again, what was Jesus saying? Jesus was saying, you are worse than my enemies. You are worse than, than the enemies of the Jews. You are worse than the enemies of God. Wow, it was such a railing judgment upon the Pharisees and the scribes. And again, the purpose of the Lord was to awaken them. And hopefully that is what is happening amongst many of us. You know, it's about time that our faith becomes, some, becomes our very life. You know, I am, I am really so tired of hearing many believers in Christ, you know, with, with a chip on their shoulder, trying to, to prove that they are superior to others in terms of practice or in terms of their theology, and I find so much hatred and so much division sometimes taking place. Now, again, we are to champion the truth. But we are not to use the truth to build our own kingdom. We are not to use the truth as our chip on our shoulder, as a badge to prove our superiority. Truth is supposed to bring emancipation and freedom. Truth is supposed to bring humility and love. Yet right now, I see so many believers in Christ walking in hypocrisy, in pride, in hatred. And you know what? That brand of Christianity will not measure up to the kind of Christianity that Jesus is espousing. And I think it's about time that we take stock, we make a spiritual stock, we make an inventory of our own spiritual lives. Are we really living the life of Christ? Because remember, eternal life is not just life without end. Eternal life is receiving the very life of God in us. That's what happened. We have received the, the, the God kind of life. 
That is what has happened. Let, let us not think that eternal life is just having our names written in the book of life. That's a huge mistake. Eternal life is, is knowing God and knowing Christ. Eternal life is having the very life of God, the life of the Holy Spirit in us, the resurrection life of God, so that we can live this, this supernatural life that Jesus lived here on earth. Jesus showed us how Christianity is supposed to be lived out. He is our perfect model. And we should model our lives with Him. Don't measure yourself with fellow believers. Because when fellow believers are seemingly lower than you in terms of your perceived spirituality or morality, it will result in spiritual pride. On the other hand, when you see people who seem to be higher in their moral compass, you might tend to, to worship them. And when you do that, you even lower your standards. No, the standard is not even those who are more spiritual than us. The standard is Christ. That is our standard. And that is why here in verse 48, finally we find the command for believers. In verse 48, Jesus says, Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. By the way, the word you here is a contrast emphasis, meaning to say, you believer, this is, this is my message for you. I'm not talking to unbelievers. I'm not talking to those who are not sons and daughters of God. You, the believer, you, the Christian, I am talking to you. This is what is meant by the contrast emphasis. Jesus was emphasizing this. Jesus was saying that we believers should resemble our Father. Be ye perfect as the heavenly Father is perfect. Now some of us might say, but how can that be? How can I be like the Father? Well, friends, I know that here on earth, we cannot be as perfect as the Heavenly Father is. Nevertheless, that is the goal. And that is why Paul said, and I'd like to quote to you, Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. Paul says, Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on. Notice what he says. He has, not, he has not obtained perfection, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal. For the price of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Forgetting the things that lie behind. You know, sometimes we, one of the things that prevents us from really pressing on forward and reaching out to the measure of perfection is our past failures, right? We keep on looking back. We keep on regretting our regrets let me ask you this question, and I'd like to use this as an analogy. When you're, I know some of you drive your vehicles. When you're driving your car, what is going to happen you, to you when you're continually looking at your side mirror? Or when you're continually looking at um, the, the, the mirror on top of your um, vehicle? Now, why do you do that, by the way? You're doing that because when you look at the side mirror, when you look at the other mirror right in the middle of your car, you're looking back. What do you think is going to happen to you when you continually do that? Well, you will eventually have a collision with another car or a collision with a lamppost or an electric post. Why? Because we cannot live our lives like that. We cannot be continually looking at our past. Paul says, forget the past. Live 
live for what lies ahead. As we live our lives with, with, what lies, with what lies ahead, we will start bearing resemblance with our Father. Again, I use the analogy, like Father, like Son. And isn't it true? Some of us would say, you have the eyes of your Father, or you have the ears of your mother. You have, you have the chin of your, of your grandfather, and so on and so forth. We do have this physical resemblance um, with our parents. You know, parentage somehow brings about these resemblances. But again, we're not talking about physical resemblance here. We're talking about a spiritual resemblance. We have to bear the resemblance of our father. And again, I know many of us can say, I can't do it. But remember Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know, anyone can go the first mile. But it is the Christian who goes the second mile. He is always doing more than anybody else. Remember, I began this series with the title, Exceeding, Our Exceeding Righteousness. Our righteousness will always exceed the righteousness of other people. The natural man might be able to give a grudging obedience. But obedience for us believers is a delight. I'd like to share to you a quotation. To return evil for good is to be like the devil. To return evil for evil is to be like an animal. To return good for good is to be like humans. But to return good for evil is to be like God. Christians, we just have to be a big step ahead of everybody else. When people look at our lives we should be able to stand head and shoulders above the rest. And why is that so? Because the life of God is in us. That is why Paul said, I pray that the eyes, your spiritual eyes might be opened, that you might know the power within you. And the power within us is the same power that resurrected Jesus Christ. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. May God bless his word in your heart. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise. And our prayer is that the word of God will not be nullified, but it will accomplish the very purpose by which you have sent it for. And Lord, right now, as we celebrate the Lord's table, prepare our hearts, O God. Right now, let's read uh, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, as we prepare for the Lord's table. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three reads, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, as we are about to celebrate the Lord's table, allow me to remind you, this celebration is only exclusively for believers alone. And I say that, why? Because only believers understand what the Lord's table is all about. Only believers understand that the bread symbolizes the body of Christ that was nailed to the cross. The Christian understands that it was his body that was supposed to be nailed to the cross, not the body of Christ. But Christ became our substitute. The Christian also understands that the wine symbolizes the blood of Jesus Christ. And he understands that without the shedding of blood, 
there can be no forgiveness of sins. Only the Christian understands that salvation is through Christ's blood as it is able to forgive our past, our present, and future sins. Only the Christian understands that he is not saved by good works because his good works will never reach the standard of perfection of God. Only the Christian understands that salvation is all by God, never a, a uh, work, a synergistic work between us and God. It is completely the work of God. It is monergistic. And only the Christian understands that. And if you do not understand that, friends, then come to Christ. Make him your only one and only true hope. The Bible says he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. There is only one mediator between God and men, and it is the man, Christ Jesus. And so receive Christ because there is no salvation in any other name, whether in heaven or on earth, except the name of Jesus Christ. And so again, while uh, this Lord's Supper is an exclusive celebration, it is likewise an invitation for you to come to Christ. And when you come to understand and embrace the gospel that we have embraced, then you can join us in celebrating the Lord's table. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, who suffered and died for our sins. And we thank you that through his sacrifice, through what he has done, we have experienced this new life and our names have been written in the book of life. We are eternally grateful to you, O Lord, for all that you've done in our lives. Indeed, Lord, salvation is all by God. It's all by grace and all by faith. And so, Lord, as we, um, as we celebrate the Lord's table, we return back to you all the glory, praises, and thanks. In Jesus' blessed name we pray. Amen. Shall we partake of the bread and wine? Praise the Lord. We thank the Lord for today. And I pray that um, with the preaching of God's word and our worship time, and the celebration of the Lord's Supper, your day is complete and you are truly blessed and refreshed in the very presence of God. So once again, my wife, Marie, and my son AJ, my team, would like to say hi and goodbye.